Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. We're in Acts chapter 16. I'll leave it to you, Beth. Over to you. From verse 19. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights rushed in and fell, trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and city officials were thrown into turmoil. 
Then they put Jason and the others on bail and let them go. Super. Thanks, Beth. Well, uh, this is part two. Uh, we started looking at Acts chapter 16 last week, and we go into 16 and 17 this week. We're looking to answer the question, how does the gospel impact a city? We are a church in a city, and we're thinking, well, how do we impact a city? How can God use us to impact a city? And so let me recap from last week, and then we'll pick up how the gospel impacts a city. The first thing we learned last week through these three extraordinary people that are transformed is um, that the gospel sets all types of people free in all types of ways. So do you remember the three people? Firstly, we have Lydia, the rich businesswoman, a dealer in purple cloth who owns two houses. She lives in Asia, but she has a house, and she will have a house church now in Philippi. She's a cosmopolitan. Uh, as Matthew said a few weeks ago, she sells beautiful things to beautiful people. She's a high-end fashion designer from Brown Thomas. She lives next door to Bono in Dorky, and she has a house in Paris and L.A. Lydia, how was she converted? Through a gentle Bible study by the river. She was seeking God, and God opened her heart through Paul's message. And she was set free from what? Well, we don't know, but the rat race. She was set free from the desire, maybe, to continue to make lots of money and, and, uh, and career. Secondly, there was a slave girl. She was demon-possessed, but she possessed, therefore, a great power by which she predicted the future. And her owners made a great deal of money for her. She was mentally unstable. Her life was chaotic. And her life was tragic. She was a victim. She was abused. Whereas Lydia was at the top, she was at the bottom. Whereas Lydia is selling beautiful things to beautiful people at Brown Thomas, this girl is being sold by her owners to the local pimps on Sheriff Street. How was she converted? Through a power encounter in the middle of the city. And Paul cast the demon out of her in the name of Jesus. She was set free from her demonic power, but also the cruel human masters that were abusing her. Lydia, the slave girl, and then the Roman jailer most likely a retired soldier, finishing off his career in a, in a comfortable job. Philippi was the leading colony of the area, so he probably had a nice gig going on there, uh, enjoying himself. He was big, he was strong, he was a no-nonsense sort of a man. He was probably quite hardened. Uh, he'd seen his first share of death, not one to show emotions, not one to let someone in. And he had been, and we looked at this last week, unnecessarily cruel and harsh to Paul and Silas, putting them in the inner prison, putting their feet in the stocks, if Lydia was at the top, the slave girl was at the bottom. Here's a man in the middle. He owns a small place in Tala and has a blue-collar job. How was he converted? In a moment of personal crisis, he became suicidal at the thought that all the prisoners were going to escape and he'd be a failure in his job and his reputation and uh, everything was on the line. Even though, he even though he had the keys to the prison, even though he was free, there were chains around his heart. He feared something, and in that moment of crisis, the fear got hold of him, and there was bitterness towards Paul and Silas. And even though Paul and Silas were in chains, there was no chains around their hearts. They were free. And we looked at that last week, the physical slavery contrasted with the spiritual freedom. There was just joy and compassion in Paul and Silas, and they're singing and praising God and, and all the rest. He was set free from what? From his pride. Three people who could not be further from each other, racially different, economically different, their social status was different, their spiritual conditions is different, 
What do we learn? The gospel's for everyone. The gospel's for you, it's for me, it's for everyone. There's not why want. Everyone needs the gospel. Everyone needs Jesus. It doesn't matter who you are. You can't be too rich and sorted like Lydia. You can't be too desperate and broken like the slave girl. You can't be too hardened and settled like the jailer. Jesus was beautiful enough for Lydia. He was powerful enough for the slave girl. And he was practical enough for the jailer. He'll set anyone free. He can set everyone free. It doesn't matter who you are. You need Jesus to set you free. That was the first thing we learned last week. Jesus sets people free. All types of people in all types of ways. Secondly, we saw that he unites diverse people together into a family of love that the world knows nothing of. In verse 40 of chapter 16, we see this house church in Philippi. I, I did this last week, but I just imagine the house church. You know, there's Lydia with her purple cloth and her gin and tonics. There is the jailer with scars, bruises, bulging muscles, tattoos. And there's a slave guard who's never been in such a posh home in all her life. And what are they doing? Well, they're sort of having grapes and donuts at the back there, aren't they? And they're greeting each other and they're kissing each other because that's the way you'd greet each other in, the, in those times. And they were united suddenly in love and they were worshipping and they were singing and they were studying the Bible. A group that would never would have gathered together were now gathered in Philippi because the gospel not only has the power to set anyone and everyone free, it has a unifying power to bring people together like nothing else in this world. They become a family of love, binding up each other's broken hearts and washing each other's physical wounds. The, the gospel is rich and flexible enough for you and it's powerful enough to bring you close to people that you wouldn't normally hang out with. And we get, a privilege, we get the privilege of seeing this every week at CCC. So many nationalities, so many backgrounds, so many different stories, and we come together in the, in the name of Jesus. So how does the gospel change the city? It sets all types of people free in all types of ways. It unites diverse people together into a, into a community of love. And then it also creates a counterculture that will attract and offend. I love Acts 17, verse 6. But they did not find him. They dragged Jason and some other believers into this, uh, before the city officials, shouting, these men have caused trouble all over the world, and now they've come here. You know, I think that's, that's a great reputation for a church. They've come all over the world, and they've come to Dublin. Oh, okay. um, so not everyone's keen. And so Paul writes this in a letter to, to the, the Corinthians. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To one we are the aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. So we see this in Philippi, we see this in Thessalonica. Yes, people are converted. Yes, people are attracted to Paul and Silas, but not all. Quite a lot of people are offended and they persecute them. In Philippi, we saw the imprisonment, the unfair, well, there was no trial, and the, and the flogging. In Thessalonica, we read today, an angry mob is formed and they go after Paul and Silas, and when they don't find Paul and Silas, they go to the house church, and who's leading the house church? Jason. And so they take him out, and they beat him. He's falsely accused, and he's postponed, which is the equivalent of having a modern-day security tracker. They want to keep tracks on his whereabouts. So some are attracted to the gospel. Lydia, the slave girl, the jailer, the prominent women in Thessalonica. But others are offended and feel threatened. So, what does it mean to be a counterculture 
in a city, I want to talk about three things. As a church, we must expect rejection, we must love our enemies, and we must make decisions for the good of the gospel. That's what it means to be a counterculture in Dublin. Or let me put it like this. As you look at the lives of Paul and Silas, what are the marks that you've truly been set free, completely free, the chains are gone from your heart? You don't fear rejection. You love those that hurt you. And the Great Commission becomes a key component in your decision-making. You've been truly set free. Let's look at the three. Expect rejection. Did you notice the moment Paul and Silas faced the persecution? Let me read them again. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas. That's Philippi in Thessalonica, but other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas. In Philippi, the owners had lost their asset. We can't make money now. The slave, she's been set free from this uh, spirit. How do we make any money from her? And they're mad. And they become persecutors. And then the Jews in Thessalonica, well, they're, what does it say? They're jealous. We don't want other people to have a following. We have control in this city. We've got it all sorted. We're in charge here. We have a nice settled life. Leave us. What are you doing here? Messing with our way of life. What's going on? Paul and Silas are disrupting people's lives by disrupting the status quo. They're undermining the very things these people have built their lives on. In Philippi, it was money. In Thessalonica, it was power or popularity. Their freedom, Paul and Silas's freedom, and the freedom they brought in Jesus' name was revealing slavery to those they went to. And some didn't want to be set free. They wanted to hold on to their gods of money, power, and popularity. People always feel threatened and defensive when you threaten or disrupt what they are currently building their lives on. Paul and Silas, they're threatening and undermining people's self-made lives and self-made identities. And so they get persecuted. The money's gone. The popularity's gone. Money was an identity marker for these two slave owners. It was what they'd built their happiness on. It's how they'd made a nice, comfortable living. And now it's gone. They're desperate. They turn to violence. In Thessalonica, it was the position and status and power that these Jews had. And when Paul and Silas take some of their followers, they come out fighting. They're desperate. In other words, the owners of the slave girl in Philippi and the Jews in Thessalonica are saying to Paul and Silas, get your hands off my God. Stop disrupting our way of life. Don't mess with my happiness. Don't come in here with your good news if it's going to ruin my life. You can always spot a false God in your life or someone else's when there are disproportionate emotions of frustration, of fear, of sadness, of jealousy, of anger, when there's disproportionately strong emotions, you know someone's God is being threatened and it won't quite stand up because it's a false God. Or you can spot another, another way to spot a false God is where there's moral corruption. So uh, we see that in their lives. You know, they start, there's no trial. They just start flogging them. And so with us, shading the truth, cutting corners, deceiving, covering up, The ends justifying the means. We can become cruel and manipulative like the slave owners. We can become fearful and suicidal like the jailer. Or we can become jealous and very angry like the Jews. 
The scriptures tell us we do this because all of us were made to worship something. Our identity was to be found in worship and serving the living God. He was to be our master. He would satisfy and fulfill us. He'd give us our identity and meaning. But we turned away from him. We sought counterfeit gods, idols. We believed the lie of our first parents. We thought following God inhibits our freedom. So I'm going to turn to something else. Career, popularity, success, family, relationships, pleasure. For the slave owners, it was money. For the Jews, it was power. For the jailer, it was reputation at work. But these things never free us. They cannot free us. Whatever we worship, we give a power in our lives. We give it power. We say, I'm going to make you everything. I'm going to build my life on you. And what we're actually doing is we're giving our allegiance and allowing that thing to have power in our lives that will enslave us. We will serve it. And we will have to give in to its demands. And so we will find in a time of crisis disproportionate emotions in our hearts unyielding sadness, bitter jealousy at others, fear and anxiety over something when you think about it is quite small, but your God is being threatened. And notice, the false gods are for the irreligious people, the pagans in Philippi, they're the money makers, but they're also for the religious. It's the Jews in Thessalonica. So we can say, oh yes, those irreligious people out there who follow money and sex and no, 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 no. It's the people that turn up to church every week like the Jews turned up to the synagogue every week. What does it mean? It means that many people go around saying they are Christians and profess faith in Jesus and they go to church and they give their money and they do all the things and say all the things Christians are supposed to do. But for many, they're not really free and for many, they're not actually converted. Because it only takes a bit of suffering, a bit of setback, a bit of hardship, something challenging, and like the jailer, and like the owners of the slave girl, and like the Jews, your life crumbles because Jesus was not your life, and your God has failed you and has not been able to prop you up in suffering. They were serving something else. So whilst it's all going well, Jesus can coexist with my real God. But when my real God falls flat in suffering, I dispatch Jesus too. In other words, there are a lot of people a lot of religious people, very busy with religion, doing lots of religious activities, and as a result, they expect their life to go well. So if their career and their love life and their bank balance and their experiences, it all sort of fits with being a Christian. Well, I'll be a Christian. I'll be religious. But when it all goes wrong, they're not sure what to do. And they give up on Jesus. But a Christian says, no, Jesus is my life. So if my love life or my career or my bank account, or the experience I'm not able to have go wrong, in a sense. I can still sing in prison, because you can't take my life from me. Jesus is my God, and he's with me in prison. You can put my feet in chains, but my heart is always free, because I built my life on Jesus. You cannot threaten my meaning in life. In fact, I might be able to discover my meaning in life to a greater extent through suffering, because I'm going to have to discover Jesus in new ways and deeper ways through suffering. If it all goes well the whole time, how do I know Jesus is my God? When it goes wrong, I have to depend on him in a deeper way. So maybe suffering can actually enhance my meaning in life as I discover him and joy in him through setback and difficulty. So where do we expect, where to expect rejection as Christians, some people will find our values, our way of life, our message, at best, odd. 
and at worst offensive. Some will feel threatened by us, and we will only be able to handle that rejection that we are bound to receive as Christians if we've been truly set free by Jesus. Their approval does not dictate my meaning in life. He does. I'm willing to be rejected for Jesus' sake. If my meaning is tied up with my career and popularity and progress and did a little, little, learn the personal experience, I'm never going to be willing to suffer for him. But if your meaning in life is Jesus, you'll suffer. Now, by the way, just before you think I'm going too far, there's nothing wrong with money and success. Lydia seems to have plenty of it. But one imagines by the way she uses it, she doesn't need it, it didn't drive her. Her meaning in life was something else, or she discovered Jesus. So she uses her money, she uses her success to serve the church and the cause of the gospel. So what does it mean to be a counterculture in Dublin today? Or what is a sign that you've really been set free by Jesus? Expect suffering, and when it comes, you remain joyful and peaceful that you still have Jesus with you. Secondly, love your enemies. We see this in Paul and Silas, don't we? When the jailer is about to kill himself, uh, Paul and Silas tell him not to. Even though he'd been unnecessarily cruel to them, they are forgiving and kind. They don't run off. They're not lawbreakers and rebels. They're good citizens. If you had been praying in prison, what would you have been praying for? I would have been praying to be to get out. But evidently that is not what Paul and Silas prayed for because when the moment came for them to leave, they stayed. So what was in their prayers? Well, it wasn't about their circumstances. Amazing. So they're miraculously set free from the chains and the prison doors fly open. But no, they don't run away. And they actually, Paul has some kind of leadership role in the prison by this stage. So he persuades all the other prisoners to stay till the morning too. So in the face of suffering, they had joy and peace. They could sing in prison. In the face of cruelty and injustice, they show kindness and forgiveness. Paul would write to a church in Rome soon after that not to repay anyone evil for evil. Don't take revenge. Rather, love your enemy. Care for your enemy. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul and Silas are truly free people. There's not a chain on their heart. Suffering cannot take away their meaning, and nor can injustice and cruelty from an enemy. Nelson Mandela, famous story of being unjustly put in prison, many years in prison. And as he wrote in his famous book, Long Walk to Freedom, he writes this. As I walked out of the door towards the gate that would lead to my freedom, I knew if I didn't leave my bitterness and hatred behind, I'd still be in a prison. To not forgive, to not love your enemy, is to keep yourself in chains. The bitterness and the anger will get hold of your heart. It will harden it. You'll become like the jailer, unnecessarily cruel at points in your life. It will drain you of love and compassion. But as you experience the freedom that Jesus brings through the cross, setting you free from your sins, a greater debt than anyone ever owes you on this earth, you'll have the power to forgive them. And I tell you, the temptation for us as a church, as the culture over the next decade becomes more hostile to Christianity, is to despise the culture out there. Don't do it. Love them. Be soft-hearted. Have love and compassion to those that might slander us and persecute us. So let me pause. Is there anyone now that God is calling you to forgive? Anyone? 
Set yourself free. Set them free. Live in freedom. Let Jesus set you free and you free yourself and you free others by forgiving them. Is there an enemy that's been harsh to you? Is there someone that goads you? Set them free and set yourself free. Now, before I move to my third point, I heard this story in the week and it's just too applicable for this passage not to find the time to talk about it. My friends were at a conference in Turkey as part of a network of churches that we're loosely connected with called New Frontiers and uh, they uh, were hearing stories of what, amazing stories of what God is doing in the global south and in the, in the east. And uh, there was a story uh, told of uh, an, uh, an Indian worship leader who, so he plays guitar, uh, he's like Nick here, you know, and uh, he uh, was going uh, around the villages in the local area and he'd play the guitar and uh, he'd draw a crowd, he'd share a simple message, people would get converted, he'd disciple them, form a church, move on to the next village. And uh, in one of the villages he'd, he'd gone to, uh, a, a young girl had uh, fallen over and really badly hurt herself by him. And he was falsely accused. And the men of that town uh, formed a mob, in a sense, got hold of him. And uh, he was taken without a trial into prison. On the way to prison, they poured petrol oil on him. In prison, what does he do? He starts singing. That's all he knows to do. Uh, the prison is, uh, can hold 30 people and it has 60 in it and it's a violent prison and uh, the, uh, uh, the, the prisoners are converted and, uh, and there's peace within the prison in cell number one and the prison guards go what, what did you do? can you do it in cell number two? so they put him into cell two he sings he, they get converted he spends 30 days in that prison and all the different cells he goes around God has an impact and the, the peace is restored in the prison and many get saved. And on the last day uh, of, of that trip, he, says, I, he said to one of the prisoners, I had a dream that there was going to be a white car. My wife is going to turn up to take me out of here. And the prisoner says, no, one, that never happens. And uh, true, true enough, the, the white car came up and, and the wife was there and took him out. And he talks about the petrol oil being God's anointing for his life uh, to go into the prison there. You see what a, I mean, it's an amazing story. It's like what we're seeing here. I haven't heard a story like that in a long time. But do you see what a man set free can do? No bitterness, no hatred. He just starts singing when he's in prison. Set yourself free, set others free. So thirdly, make good decisions for the good of the gospel. The passage has so many remarkable things in it. But one of the most remarkable is that Paul and Silas didn't reveal their Roman citizenship until the following day, verse 37. Verse 37 says, but Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly and without trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and they threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. So being a Roman citizen was a big deal. It gave you privileges and rights. And one of those, according to Roman law, was that you couldn't be unjustly, you, you, you couldn't be put in prison without a trial. And Paul and Silas hadn't had a trial. So when they get wind of the fact that they're Roman citizens, you can see they're a bit nervy. Oh, well, we could lose our jobs because we've been bad you know, uh, authorities in this area. And so we read in verse 39 that they're alarmed. And then in verse 39, we read, they came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. And then they left. So do you see, if Paul and Silas had played their trump card early, I'm a Roman citizen, if they played that trump card, then what would have happened? They could have played it 24 hours before when the mob was being formed. No flogging, no wounds, no feet in the inner stocks. 
None of that. Why not? Why didn't they say we're Roman citizens? Well, what happens in Thessalonica? Do you remember? A mob is formed. They rush to find Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas aren't in Jason's house. So what do they do? Who do they pick on? Who do they pick on? Jason and the house church. The mob smell blood and they want to fight. And when they can't find Paul and Silas, they'll pick on the church. And so it seems that Paul and Silas show incredible leadership in Philippi. This small, fragile church with just a few believers, they think we want to take the wrath of the authorities for them. It was for the sake of the small house church in Lydia's home they were going to re- that they wanted to receive the suffering and persecution that they would have taken from the angry mob who didn't like the new counterculture in their city. So they take their wrath, they absorb their pain, they protect the church. And through a declaration of their Roman citizenship, they vindicate the gospel and they ensure this small house church will not be hassled going forward. That yes, these Christians are weird and yes, these Christians have a different message but they are law-abiding citizens. And even if they don't hold the same values and the same vision of life, they are not troublemakers and should be left alone to meet in the city. So Paul and Silas didn't play their trump card because they wanted to protect the church, it seems. Later, Paul would write to this Philippian church. He'd write to the jailer. He'd write to Lydia. He'd write to the slave girl from another prison, this time in Rome, and he would say these words, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to going on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. What shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart, to be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you, Lydia, for you, the slave girl, and for you, the Roman jailer, that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I'll remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. What motivates Paul's decision-making? It's the needs of the church, the progress and joy of the brothers and sisters, the continued freedom of Lydia and the jailer and the slave girl. When Jesus really sets you free, truly sets you free, deeply sets you free, decision-making is never just about you. When you're really set free, decision-making is never just about you. It's about you, the cause of the gospel, and the local church. Do you see that? When you're really being set, when he's got hold of you in a deeper way. When Jesus really sets you free, life, your vision of life becomes bigger than personal comfort and progression. It's not about, does my career progress? It's how does the gospel progress? That's the question, isn't it? It's not, uh, how can I ensure more comfort? It's how can the church be strengthened? Do you see? Your priorities change when he really sets you free. Before Jesus came into our lives, when we made decisions, we just thought, well, what's best for me? But now Jesus has come into my heart. He's, he's won my life. He's, he's come into my life. He's won my heart. He's united me to brothers and sisters who I love dearly. So it affects my decision-making. Now the church and the cause of the gospel in the city and my brothers and sisters become a vital factor in my decision-making. Am I willing to be held back, restricted, or even suffer that my brothers and sisters might be strengthened? We live in such an individualistic society. It is hard for many of us to comprehend making a decision about our lives on how it might affect the church. But this is a key mark of spiritual freedom. 
a key part of being a counterculture. We've been set free from the culture's expectations. Will you make decisions to put the cause of the gospel and the growth of the church in Dublin above your own personal progression and comfort? Some of you have never thought about it. You've never thought like this. Think about it. Don't let Dublin's expectations and the the family expectations and the school you went to expectations and your reason for being in Dublin in the first place, rethink your motivations and your expectations. We don't get set them by the world or our background or by, we get set them by Jesus. Paul and Silas had a bigger vision than their own personal comfort and progression. They had real freedom. Some of you might feel threatened by such an application from a talk. Make decisions for the sake of the gospel and the church, not what's good for me. Why do you feel threatened? What God is being threatened in your life right now by that suggestion? What does it reveal about your heart? And if the idea of making decisions, not based on what's best for me, but what's best for me and the church and the cause of it, if that feels so claustrophobic or restricting, then remember this. Remember the one who made the ultimate decision for your progress and joy. He restricted himself to give you a freedom this world cannot buy. He suffered to give you a joy and progress that you'll never discover through your own means. He made a decision that cost him dearly. He suffered the anger of the mob. He wasn't given a fair trial. He absorbed all the wrath of that crowd. But the next day, he wasn't let go. He was crucified. He wasn't let out. No one washed his wounds. He suffered and died to buy your freedom and joy. When you see the decision he made and what it cost him to give you spiritual and eternal freedom, it will unlock your heart to start making decisions, not just for your good, but the good of the gospel, the good of brothers and sisters in this church and in the city. This is what the gospel does in a city. In our city, it sets us free, really free. Anyone and everyone can be set free, this free. It unites people together from all kinds of backgrounds and we become full of love and affection for one another. And it gives us a bigger vision for our lives, our priorities, our decision-making. It all changes. The more Jesus sets you free, the more you're motivated by things that your world, the world around you, your non-Christian friends and family, just that you're the oddest person. Why do you make the decisions you make? And you guys serve a different master. And you're willing to suffer and go through hardships so the church can be strengthened and others discover Jesus. You open up your home, you welcome strangers, you forgive enemies, you exhibit a peace and joy in suffering, you endure hardship and setbacks so others can experience progress. You show compassion and love, particularly to those that have hurt you. There is no community on earth like the church. There is none. It's so countercultural. It's provocative. There's no category for it. It's like salt and light. It's distinct. It's different. It's all over the world. It's in all cultures, all types of people. To some, it smells like death. And they are so threatened by this kind of freedom. But to those who are being saved, to those whose hearts God is opening with a smell of life, may Jesus continue to set us free from the chains around our hearts that we may lead other people into the freedom that we are discovering in him. Let me pray. So, Lord Jesus, we thank you for all that you've done in our lives. We thank you for this amazing story of this house church being formed in Philippi. We thank you for the lives of your servants, Paul and Silas, who brought the gospel to Europe for the first time. 
And since then, the gospel has been passed on by other believers. And here we are today, gathering as a small group to worship Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you'd continue to set us free. Pour out your spirit on our lives afresh now as we respond. That the chains around our hearts would be loosened. That we'd be willing to be rejected for your sake. That we would love our enemies. And that we'd be so free that we would make decisions not just for our progress, but for the progress of the gospel and the local church. In your name we pray. Amen.